Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts. We're going to be at the tail end of chapter 21 is where we'll begin, and then we'll be spending most of our time in the first 22 verses of chapter 22. So this is Acts chapter 21, where we will begin. If you have been here over the, especially if you're here last Sunday, uh, you will probably remember that Paul was uh, in the temple in Jerusalem, and he was trying to do what? He was trying to obey the ceremonial laws, not to be saved, not because he had to, but because he wanted to do what? He wanted to be a Jew to the Jews to win the Jews. And so, in that moment, he was falsely accused. Last Sunday's sermon was all about being wrongly or falsely, unjustly accused of doing things that he did not do, namely defiling the temple in ceremonial way, bringing a Gentile into the temple, which would have been the death penalty in that time. Paul had not done that. He's arrested, really, he's overtaken by a mob who begin to beat him, punch him, slap him, scrape him, cut him up. They drag him outside of the inner precincts of the temple. They shut those giant doors, and um, they bring him out. And the Roman soldiers see him. They run down. They rescue Paul from the crowd, not because they actually care about Paul, but because they want to maintain, what, the Pax Romana, <laughs> the Roman peace. They don't want there to be an up, uh, you know, some kind of uprising. So they stop the tumult. They grab Paul. They put him in chains. They're about to take him into the Antonia Fortress on the northwestern uh, side of the Jerusalem Temple Mount. And right before Paul is going to be let into the temple, he is given permission to speak to the Jewish people who are calling for His blood. Now, before we read into the text, and I'm actually going to only… I'm going to read the text in pieces today. We'll, we'll work through it in, in three uh, parts. But I'm going to title, uh, title the sermon today, Paul's Bold Testimony. Paul's Bold Testimony. And I'm going to give three points, and we'll just sort of walk in order. And they're pretty simple. If you want to jot these down, you don't have to. But number one uh, is who Paul was, which is verses one through five of chapter 22, who Paul was, verses 1 through 5. Number two, who Paul met, which is verses 6 through 11. So, who Paul was, verses 1 through 5, who Paul met, verses 6 through 11, and who Paul became, verses 12 to 21. So, who Paul was, who Paul met, and who Paul became, verses 12 to 21 for that last point. And we are going to look today at how Paul uses his testimony, and by testimony I mean what we normally mean, our, our story of how we came to know the Lord. And I want to show Paul as an example of how to wield your testimony as a holy weapon for the sake of the kingdom, okay? Not a weapon that hurts people, a weapon that opens them up to the beauty of Jesus. When Paul says, our, uh, our weapons are not of the flesh, but we, what? He says, our weapons are not against the flesh. We, we, we use spiritual weapons in the spirit's realm. We have the, the right, weapons of righteousness on the right hand and to the, to the left that we wage warfare uh, with, uh, with Satan and his demons. So, we're going to begin. I'm going to start at the end of last week's passage. We'll read through 22 verse 5. So, let's start in 21 verse 30. 21 verse 30. This is the Word of the Lord. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. 
Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came uh, to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they had uh, heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the, brothers, uh, to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, we'll stop there. We'll take this in parts. It's our first point, verses 1 through 5, who Paul was. Now, it may even feel like a cliche at this point to talk about Paul's background. We, we've heard this. We, we know probably his, his background very well. Why does Paul bring it up in this, particular, uh, in this particular setting? Well, I think that Paul is quite aware of his audience. And here's something I would like to uh, propose to you. I'm, I'm starting with application at the very beginning. This is probably not wise, but we're going to start with application, and then we'll sort of work going forward. There's a lot of application today from this sermon. But number one is this. When you have an opportunity to share your testimony, when you get an opportunity to share your story of how the Lord has worked in your life and brought you to faith in Christ, when you get that chance, be aware. Now listen, if we don't do this perfectly, the Lord is gracious. And so, we always rely on the Lord's, you know, grace in this, but still, we want to be wise. And when we get an opportunity to share our testimony, we want to be trying to understand what the people we're speaking to, what do they believe? And when, when possible, when necessary, we can bring out the details of our story that best match with the experience of the people that we are talking to. Now, listen for a second. I am not saying that we distort the truth. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is, though, Paul is talking to who? A group of people who are Jewish to the core. They believe in the, all the Jewish laws. They are ready to do violence to people who break the Jewish laws. Does that sound like Paul 20 years earlier? This sounds just like Paul 20 years ago. And so, Paul is saying, listen, I know you guys think I'm some blasphemer. You think I'm some sort of heretic. You think that I don't really care about the Old Testament law. They would have just called it the Scripture. You, you think I don't care. L listen, listen to my credentials. I can, you know, it wasn't that it, he would never say it like this, but he says, listen, if there's a competition about who wins the most Jewish Pharisee points, Paul's like, you don't know who you're messing with here. 
I can win that game. If you want to play the game of who is most devoted to the law to the point of zeal to killing people like you're about to do to me, that's who I was. That was the air I breathed. And so, when we are sharing our testimony, if there are aspects of your story… I'm talking about, obviously, true things that have happened to you. If they match in some way the person you are speaking with, why not highlight those details when you are sharing your story with them? Does that make sense? So, think about your background. Think about the details of your story that would be most relevant to the audience or the person that you're speaking with. Maybe it's over the phone. Maybe it's after class. Maybe it's a coworker at work. Maybe it's a family member over Thanksgiving holiday. You're sitting in the living room, and something comes up about this or that, and you, you have an opportunity to share. Think about how you can sort of, in, in whatever way that is true and genuine, relate to where they are and what they believe and highlight those aspects of your story. That's precisely what Paul is doing in this particular example. And what does he highlight? Well, I want you to hold your spot here for a second and turn to the right to Romans, the tail end of 9 and the beginning of 10. So, turn with me to the tail end of Romans chapter 9. Paul highlights religious zeal. Religious zeal. And this paragraph or a couple of paragraphs does a great job explaining what he's referring to. Romans 9 verse 30 through 10 verse 4. Romans 9.30, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by what? By faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have, here it is, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge." For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, just I want everyone to listen attentively to this. This is so critically important. It's the center of the Christian faith. The stumbling stone of the gospel is not that, not that miracles can happen. The stumbling stone of the, of the gospel is not that there are angels and demons, although people sometimes can make fun of those ideas. The stumbling stone of the gospel is not even that there are places like heaven and one day the new earth and a place called hell. Jesus called it Gehenna, the, the lake of fire. That's not even the primary stumbling stone of Christianity. You know, the number one thing that keeps people from embracing Christ, on their way to Christ, they stumble over this. What is it? At fundamental, not just true of the Jewish people, it's true of, I think, virtually all people. We think we have merited right standing with God, if He exists, by how we have lived. We think that we are fundamentally, basically good people. And I'm telling you, if you think of yourself as fundamentally decent, fundamentally good, I, I want to challenge you to focus in Scripture on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. You may have heard of the, the theologian John Calvin from the 1500s. He was a little younger than Luther by a few years. 
John Calvin wrote this great book called The Institutes of the Christian Religion. I have to say to my shame, I have still never worked my way through this massive book, but I hope to one day in my life if I, if I live long enough. But I have read at least some. And one of the great parts of The Institutes is how Calvin begins his first book, the beginning of the book. John Calvin with that, remember him with the crazy looking, interesting facial hair? Remember him? The hat, the good Genevan theologian? John Calvin begins by saying, I'm paraphrasing this. He says, men walk around, men and women, and we basically live our lives comparing ourselves to one another. That's what we do. That's, that's how we try to get our value, try, try to get our worth. If you think our secular culture doesn't have religious values and, and care vehemently with zeal to the point of almost violence over their beliefs, I don't think you're paying attention. Everyone is religious in the sense that we have these deeply held commitments, and we want to live up to them in some way, and we think that if we achieve some sort of righteousness, that makes us justified. It makes us, makes us worthy. It makes us righteous in some sense. And, and what, what, what Calvin says is, when we compare ourselves with one another, it is not that hard to find someone that we are better than in some way. Whatever your view of righteousness is, you compare yourself to someone else, you say, those are the bad people. Thank goodness I'm one of the good people right? And it might be political self-righteousness, right? Where, my, you, you know, you, you look at yourself as righteous in the sense of your political views or your religious views or your moral views or whatever they may be. And we sort of put ourselves up on this mountain peak and we look down our nose at others. And this is how we live our lives to get a very sense of worth and significance. This is the stumbling stone that the Jewish people in majority tripped over. They thought, what do you mean we need a gift of righteousness from Christ? what do you think we've been doing all of our lives? We've been creating a righteousness by which we will stand confident before God on the final day. And Calvin says, so long as we compare ourselves with ourselves, yeah, you can feel okay about yourself. He says, but the second our eyes are no longer looking horizontally, and the first time in your life, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, you actually started looking vertically. The comparison was no longer with your flawed neighbors and friends. Do you remember the first time that you actually had an Isaiah 6 experience in the temple where you looked up and you saw some glimpse of the holiness of God. And what happened? In the flash, like in the twinkling of an eye, what happened? All your pretended righteousness looked like filthy and polluted garments. It looked like a joke. It looked like fraud. It looked like husks and ashes. It looked like nothing that could ever sustain you come that day and you fled. You fled from your righteousness, so-called, and you raced to Christ, and you put your arms out. You said, I've got nothing in my hands to bring. I'm simply going to cling to your cross. And when we did that, Jesus clothed us in His righteousness. So guess what? We, like Greg was talking about, we can stand confident before God because of the intercessory prayer and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, our Savior. That is true of us. The danger is this, it is not hard to live a middle-class American life with our phones and our screens and our iPads. I've got a phone and an iPad right here looking at me, okay? I'm not escaping this world. You've got your TV. You've got all kinds. It is so easy to make it through a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade without ever once thinking about looking vertically. Isn't that true? It's distraction, 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 this and that and the other, and we're running at 100 miles an hour. We never have time to think and meditate, and yet Calvin says if we lift our eyes to heaven, we will have an Isaiah 6 moment. If you don't remember what that means, let me just remind you, and if you've heard it, it's worth hearing again. After King Uzziah had been king for more than 50 years, can you imagine that? 50-year king. 
you grew up, he was king, you got married and had kids, he was still king, your kids had kids, he was still king. This guy's been king for over half a century, he dies, and there's this moment of great instability, right? Who's going to take over? Is he going to be a good king? Uzziah was a pretty good king. What's going to happen now? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. The train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him were the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, He covered His eyes. With two, He covered His feet. With two, He was flying. Each one cried to the other saying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the whole room was filled, the temple was filled with smoke. And I said, woe am I. I am ruined. He crumples to the floor, and what happens? The Lord looks over at the seraphim, the seraphim goes and takes tongs, picks up a live coal for burning from the altar. Think of a coal coming from the grill, right? You pick up this burning coal with these tongs, the angel comes over, he places the burning coal against Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah had said what? I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I'm dead. I'm ruined. The Lord touches that coal. That purification occurs. Isaiah is in that moment forgiven. The Lord says, you're forgiven. And then He calls Isaiah on mission. Isaiah had been living his life in many ways looking horizontally. And when he looked horizontally, he was probably better than just about anybody else in Israel at the time. But when he looked vertically. When he looked up and he saw the king, he crumpled into nothing on the floor and begged for God's kindness and forgiveness because when you are face-to-face with God, the comparison you have with your classmate or that person that you work with or whatever, those comparisons look like a horrifying joke compared to God. And so, do not stumble over the stumbling stone. Just because you consider yourself religious and are passionately zealous for your religion does not mean you are right with this holy God. Paul was more zealous for his religion than most people are in America, and yet he was lost. He he was passionately doing the wrong thing. We can turn back to Acts 22. People will sometimes say, you know, I'm scared of people like you. They might say this to you. I'm scared. You guys are like religious fundamentalists. And ever since 9-11, 20 years ago, I have never trusted religious fundamentalists. I think people who really believe their religion aren't, aren't, just, aren't just noble. I think that they're dangerous. I think that they're radicals, fanatics, because they deeply believe their religion. Religious fundamentalism is one of the great enemies of the world. That has been a theme for the last two decades. Would you agree? That's a pretty common thing you'll hear said. I've heard a response to that that I think is worth mentioning. You know, I actually partly agree. This is going to sound strange. I actually partly agree with that statement. If your religious fundamental is your own righteousness, then I think you could become dangerous. I think that you would be self-righteous, and I think you're likely to treat other people as less than you. But what if our fundamental is not our righteousness? What if our fundamental belief at the center of who we are as Christians is not that I'm better than you? What if that's not my belief? What if my belief is I'm worse than you probably if we actually knew everything? I I know more of my sin than I know of your sin, right, because I have to live with myself. I don't know virtually, I know very little of your sin. I know all about my sin. So if, I, if you want to talk about sinner, I'm talking about me. I'm not talking about you, okay? This is not about me being better than you, okay? That's, that's not what Christianity is about. So, so what is it? Christianity is about admitting that I don't have what it takes. Our fundamental belief, get, get, get this, religious fundamentalists are dangerous. Some of them are. How about this? What if my fundamental belief that my whole life is, I'm trying to build my life on the rock, what if the fundamental belief is, God loves sinners, 
and He gave His only beloved Son to stand in their place and to die for them. What if that's my fundamental? Then I have no problem being called a religious fundamentalist, if that's what you mean. My, if my fundamental is God, His Son, dying for me when I was a sinner, I'm all about that kind of religious fundamentalism, because those kinds of people are going to be kind, because God was kind to them. They're going to be forgiving, because God has forgiven them a great debt. You cannot out-sin… Listen, you cannot sin against me worse than I have sinned against God. So I've always got power to forgive you no matter what you do to me. Does that make sense? No matter what… Now, listen, I know some of you in this room have undergone real evil. You've endured real, significant evil, tear-jerking, hard-to-believe kinds of evil that you've endured in this room. I'm sure if we had an open mic time and you shared honestly, we would all be in tears knowing about all the pain and grief that has been experienced in this room. But I, I will tell you something. I don't want to minimize that at all. I want to maximize something else. If you take all the evil that's been done against you, it's real. I'm not denying it. It's real. Now look vertical and see what you've done against a holy God in your heart, words, attitudes, actions, deeds, whether willful or not even really thinking. You've just done things. The way that you and I have offended an infinitely holy God is infinitely greater than any offense committed against your person. And therefore, we always have resources to forgive the unforgivable because God has forgiven the unforgivable in us already. That is the power of forgiveness. So, if, if we want to be fundamentalists, let's make the gospel our fundamental belief, our, our, our fundamental point of contact with the world. I'll just mention really quickly, uh, Caitlin Wood uh, this week came to Westminster, and she got to share for seven classes seven class periods in a row. That is called exhaustion, okay? She shared her testimony seven class periods in a row to almost all of our 6th through 12th graders. And so, she got to talk to, I don't know, a lot of students. It was fantastic. I got to hear a couple of the, a couple of the periods. But what was fantastic was this. Caitlin was doing something similar to what Paul was doing, although her background is different. She talked about her, her secular atheistic beliefs a few years ago that she had, and she talked about um, a very strong… Uh, uh, disbelief in certain parts of the Bible, and she talked about that, and so it was amazing. The students in the room, and I know some of them better than others, but the students in the room, some of them do struggle with secularism and these other things. When they heard Caitlin share her struggle, they're like, yeah, that's, that's my struggle too, and guess what? When Caitlin talked about her own meeting Jesus and how everything changed when she met Christ, these students, I looked around, some of them were just, it was like pin drop silence. Some of these students were just zeroed in completely on her testimony because she had identified with them in her testimony, and then she had walked through her salvation experience and talked about where she had come, and I think that's a powerful way, like Paul, that we can, that we can share our testimony. Number two, back in Acts 22, who Paul met. So, number one was who Paul was. He was a zealous persecutor of the church. Number two, who Paul met. He met the risen Jesus. Look at verses 6 through 11. Acts 22, verses 6 through 11. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. 
And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now, th- this is an important point here. Number one, uh, this is a sub-point for under number two, <laughs> real quick, we should be ready, and I, I want to be ready myself, we should be ready to share our testimony, and just as a statement of wisdom, I think we should have different links to how we can share our story. So, you, we've all got like the three-hour version. You don't need to always break that one out over, over water at work, you know. How, how did you come to know the Lord? Sit down, I will tell you. No, we don't need to always do that. So, we need to have different versions of our testimony. Have a short version. Have a version you can tell in less than a minute. Just, just boil it down. Talk about how you've come to know the Lord in one minute. Have another one that might be 10 or 15 minutes, and then you can have one that goes even longer than that. But you try to even… I don't mean to sound silly, but you can even practice it. You can even try to sort of speak through it and and boil it down so you can share it briefly, if possible, in a different situation. But maybe the most important thing I can say about this, please don't confuse your testimony with the gospel. And I I wrote this down. See what you think. I, I think there's a better way to think about this. Don't confuse your testimony with the gospel. Rather, fill your testimony with the gospel. How about that? Don't confuse your testimony with the gospel. What Jesus has done in your life, I want to be careful here, what Jesus has done in your life is not the gospel. It's the effect of the gospel. It's what the gospel does. The gospel is not you, and it's not what's happened to you. The gospel is what's changed you, but your change is not the gospel, it's what the gospel does. So, when you're telling your story, is it not a golden opportunity to talk about Jesus? Paul's telling his testimony. What does he do? He packs it with Jesus. He's talking about the risen Jesus of Nazareth. And um, let me just make a point here. Hold your spot here and turn to chapter 26 of Acts. As you will remember, Paul gets… in this story we've been looking at, Paul gets cut off before he can finish his testimony. Did you all notice that? Uh, Well, we haven't even read it yet, I guess, (laughs) so you'll see it in a minute. But Paul gets cut off. He's in the middle of telling his story, and he gets cut off by by the mob. So he doesn't get to finish the story. But we get what he would have probably said later when he shares his testimony again. Chapter 26, the party gets cut off in our chapters when he mentions the Gentiles. Let's see what he would have said. 26 verse 17. He's talking to Herod Agrippa here. Paul says this, delivering… Acts 26, 17, delivering you, this is Jesus talking to Paul, delivering you from your people, that's Israel, and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer." and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles." So, you can turn back to Acts 22, but this is what Paul would have said had the mob not interrupted him in just a moment. Is the gospel in that? 
Yes, Jesus the Christ suffered and died for us. We must repent and believe in Him to be saved. Okay, now we're not talking about praying in front of unbelievers, but let me just add a little extra application point here, okay? Um, if, you get, if you're with an unbeliever and you get the opportunity to pray, I remember one time I heard a pastor who was praying with a Muslim in another country in, a, in, a mission, in missions work. He had, he had built a friendship with a Muslim man. They had a good friendship, very different beliefs, but he was trying to minister to this Muslim man. And after they'd known each other for, I think, six months maybe, talking regularly, uh, finally, he asked, the pastor asked if he could pray with the Muslim man, or maybe even, the, no, I think maybe the Muslim man asked him to pray. I can't remember the details. But either way, the Christian was praying for the Muslim. And the, the pastor said, you better believe he was about to get an earful of the gospel. Because when you get a chance to pray, why not use it to mention the gospel? Jerry, I'll embarrass you here. Now, Jerry's going to be self-conscious. I shouldn't say this stuff out loud because then you think about it. But Jerry, imagine I'm… Just shut your ears. So, Jerry does this all the time. Jerry will get invited to some particular event that I've been sitting there watching, and there might be unbelievers or believers there, and they ask Jerry to pray. That's just what you do when Jerry's there. You ask Jerry Jerry to pray. So, Jerry prays, and I cannot tell you how many times with any kind of group of people around, Jerry will just suddenly in the middle of his prayer, just say something like, thank you, Lord, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, you don't have to pray that, but I love that he prays that. Or he might say, God, thank you that you, uh, that, that you made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Or on and on. Why not? If you Just take, take the gospel in one sentence, one verse, and just include it in your prayer if non-believers are listening and believers. Uh, why, why not include more of the gospel in our opportunities? So again, in our testimony, let's include the gospel in what we are saying Final point, number three. I'm having to skip lots of things here, but number three, uh, who Paul became. Verses 12 to 21, he became a new man and a witness to the Gentiles. Let's look at this verse 12 of Acts 22. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by the Jews who lived there. I'm sorry, I just need to pause. Why does Paul add those details? He was a devout man according to the law and well spoken of by the Jews who lived there. He's appealing to his audience, right? He's including details in the story that he doesn't have to include because he's appealing to non-Christian Jewish people who prize the law. So, he says, listen, the guy who was there when he led me to Christ is a devout man who follows the law and is well spoken of by the Jews. I'm not talking about some heretic here. I'm talking about someone you would like. So, so again, as we include or exclude details, think about the details that will most appeal to the situation that our, our listeners are in, in most cases. Verse 13, so Ananias came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him, and he said, the God of our fathers, again, appealing to his audience, the God of our fathers, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, 
I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Okay. Remember how I said Paul was being a Jew to the Jews. Remember I even said Paul was willing to undergo ceremonial purification in order not to unnecessarily offend the Jews. Now, please listen carefully to this. Paul is willing to become a Jew to the Jews. He's also willing to become a Gentile to the Gentiles so long as he doesn't have to break God's law. But this is crucial. When it comes to being faithful to the truth, Paul will not make any compromise over doctrine. Because think, Paul could just leave out the call of the Gentiles in his gospel, and they probably would have listened to the, to the end of his speech. But what does Paul do? He can't leave out the reconciliation of all peoples in Christ. That's not part of the gospel that you can choose to leave out because you happen to be speaking to someone who is racist, right? You can't say, oh, I'm talking, become a racist to the racist to win the racist. No, Paul would not say, I'm going to morally compromise around a group right now that is acting in a, in a, in a, in a racially charged, religiously prejudiced way. I'm not going to speak to them in a way that would actually leave the Gentiles out of Christ because that would be unfaithfulness to the very content of the gospel. So Paul knows he's taking a huge risk here and they will probably begin to scream and shout, which is exactly what they do. And what does Paul do anyway? He includes the truth because when it comes to the truth of the gospel and the commands of Scripture. Listen, we cannot compromise the commands and doctrines of Scripture for the sake of evangelism. If you evangelize someone with a compromised message, you are not actually calling them to the true Christ. Do you, you hear me? There's going to be a pressure to leave things out of both doctrine and morality in our day and age, high pressure to mute and minimize and edit things out of the text because we know that people might start throwing dirt in the air and saying, away with him, he's not fit to live. But that cannot, the result can't determine what we say. Paul knows this could go bad, and he says, I've got to say what's true. Je he sent me to the Gentiles, and they go, we knew it. We knew you were a compromiser. We knew you didn't care about Israel. We knew it. We knew it. We knew it. You're a heretic. Kill him. That's the response of the people. But Paul will not compromise the truth, even if he knows the result may not be what he wants to hear. Well, let me move toward a conclusion here as we begin to think about communion. But before I get there, I want to share uh, one more thing. Paul became a new person. Um, has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? So th this past week, and I, I won't go through all the details of this, but th this past week, uh, in fact, on Friday, the day before yesterday, I spent most of the day in, in Macon, Georgia, because I was attending the funeral of a childhood friend of mine had not seen this man in a number of years, although he did call me periodically. The last probably six years, I may have talked to him six times. Maybe once a year we talked on the phone. Uh, right here, this, this is a picture of David Golson. This is from his, from his funeral, and um, he was 36 years old. And uh, Scott knew him as well from our childhood, from their teenage years. Uh, David, I'm just going to tell you a brief story here of, his, of, his, of what happened to him. When, he, when I knew him, not trying to sound judgmental, but I did not for one second think he was a Christian. And I don't think most people who knew him thought. He might have kind of said he was Christian. You know, he grew up in Athens. He went to church sometimes, but he was not. There was nothing about his life that sounded like he was devoted to Jesus. And he became an adult, 
got married, had a daughter who's now eight. I think his son is six. He and his wife went through some major marital conflicts a number of years ago, and they went through a divorce. And David, after the divorce, was a broken person. He was just, he was just shattered by all that happened. And he was 31 years old, okay, this is about five or so years ago, 31 years old, he hit absolute rock bottom. He did not know Jesus. He had a kind of cultural Christianity, that was it. His wife had left. Uh, the, the, it, was, it was really difficult with the children who were very young, the very young children at the time, and he was just left in absolute tatters, and he was calling different childhood friends to talk about what was going on. And he talked with a few of my friends who are devout, love the Lord, love Jesus, devout believers, and they were sharing Christ with him. They were, they were saying, David, you've got to turn to Jesus. And th- this is just incredible to me. 31 years old, uh, this, this, this is the detail of the story. Multiple people attested to this part of the story. I think even he told me this one time. He finally hit him on. He was alone in his house. He was in the bathtub, okay? I'm just going to tell you. That's what it was. He's in the bathtub, and he was unbelievably depressed. I don't know if he had contemplated suicide or not, but he was unbelievably depressed and hopeless and dark and broken. He was normally an upbeat, positive guy. And he said, sitting there that night in that spot, he hit bottom, and he said he felt this overwhelming weight of his own sin. And for maybe the first time in his life, he felt like God's judgment was really something he deserved. And he said, sitting there in the bathtub, he started to sob over his sin. He said, for one solid hour, he wept and wept and wept and called out to Christ, and then his life changed virtually overnight. He became a new person. And before long, he's calling me on the phone, this is a few years ago, he's saying, hey, I'm going to Gordon-Conwell Seminary. I said, What? <laughs> Not, the, not what I was expecting. And he was set to graduate next month from Gordon-Conwell. He had been one year uh, pastoral training at a great uh, PCA church in Florida where he had been training and uh, died, died suddenly and, and sadly just two weeks and a day ago. The day before Halloween, he passed away. And um, here, here's why I bring that up. Hearing people share about his testimony over and over during his funeral, some of my old friends got up and spoke about what had happened. It made me realize two things. Number one, 36 years old, when he woke up on Saturday two weeks and a day ago, he had no idea that by midnight he would be standing before God. No idea, any more than you or I would right now. So number one is, this is not a scare tactic. I'm telling you honestly, any one of us on any day of our life could meet the Lord. The only thing separating me from God is a muscle beating in my chest. That's it. Any day of my life, for any number of reasons, any of us, before the sun sets, could meet the Lord. That that is absolutely true. So, number one, you just don't know when the last day will be. Number two, have you experienced the transformation Paul experienced that I heard about David, both from his own mouth and also from others about what happened to him? Has that happened in your life? If it hasn't, the invitation for salvation is right here. I believe in the universal offer of the gospel. Anyone who will turn and trust in Christ. Anyone who wants Jesus with a true heart, He's yours. What's holding you back from Jesus? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 as we come to the Lord's table. As you are turning there, I don't want to distract you with this, but I just want to mention it because I feel like I, I should mention it. I mentioned it in Sunday school a few weeks ago. 
Our plan next time we have new members join, which will be in the spring. We don't have a date yet, but in the spring we plan to have new members come on again. We're going to change our policy on communion just slightly after the next round of new members joins. It does not go into effect today. It will go into effect, Lord willing, when the next round of new members joins our church. This is the slight change. I think it's worth hearing about. And if you want to know why we take this view, we can talk afterwards. I'd be happy to talk to you about that, or any of the elders can talk to you about that. Historically, there have been at least three views of who is allowed to take communion in a church service. Now, all Christians believe that non-Christians should not take the Lord's Supper, that they need Jesus, they don't need the symbol of Jesus. All all Christians at all time would agree, non-Christians need Jesus, not the symbols. But there are three views of communion that I'll mention very quickly. Number one is open communion, which is what we have practiced as a church. Anyone who is a professing Christian may come forward and take of the elements and return to their seat. That's open communion. Anyone who claims Christ can come forward and take the elements. The, The extreme opposite view is called closed communion. Closed communion with an E-D on the end, closed, that view says only members in good standing of this church can take communion. That's called closed communion. Now, we've been open communion, but we don't think closed communion is right. I think that's overly shutting the door too tightly on communion. I think I can make an argument for visitors uh, taking communion. So, we're going to be moving towards what historically has been called, are you ready? close communion with no D on the end. I'm not making this up, okay? So, we've had open communion. We're doing close communion, not closed communion. Close communion, okay, like we're close, okay? Close communion, that means for a person to be allowed to take communion at our church after our next round of new members, instead of anyone who calls themselves a Christian, we are now going to have the restriction which has been affirmed by most of the church for most of history. This is the, the view. You must be a member in good standing of a gospel faithful local church, okay? So, you could be a visitor from a church in Canada. If they preach the gospel and you're a member in good standing of a church in Canada and you come here, you are absolutely welcome to take the Lord's Supper. What we are, what we are restricting it from is people who are, who are not members of churches. And, and I could talk to you about why, why all that is later, but I thought now would be a good time uh, to mention that. 1 Corinthians 11, let me read for us our text. Verse 23. Paul says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes." Please bow your heads together with me. As you are bowing your heads, let me just remind you of part of what I just said. If you, are, uh, if you love the Lord, if you are not walking in unrepentant sin, uh, but you uh, would like to come forward in just a moment when I'm done praying, you can come forward as you choose to partake of the elements and return to your seat and celebrate the goodness of the Lord in what those elements represent. Heavenly Father, thank You that You love guilty helpless, weak, lost sinners like us. Thank You that You went on a rescue mission with Christmas, sending Your Son to be born in our likeness, to live without sin, to die the death of a criminal, and to be raised to new life for our salvation. Thank You, Lord Jesus, that You gave Your body. Imagine giving Your body and Your blood. Thank You that You gave Your very body and blood for us, and that when we come forward and partake 
of the bread representative of your body and the cup representative of your blood. God, help us to celebrate and rejoice in the security and the love that we have only in our Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.